Well, we're going to be reading God's Word together. Um, I'd invite you to read along with me. Um, I'd like if we could go ahead and start with that today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. And we're going to pick up at verse 21 where we left off last week. So if you follow along with me, it says this. When Jesus left there, he withdrew to the area of Tyre and Sidon. Just then a Canaanite woman from that region came and kept crying out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely tormented by a demon. Jesus did not say a word to her. His disciples approached him and urged him, Send her away because she's crying out after us. He replied, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came, knelt before him, and said, Lord, help me. He answered, It isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yes, Lord, she said. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus replied to her, Woman, your faith is great. Let it be done for you as you want. And from that moment, her daughter was healed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, as we, as we open your word, as we see the way Jesus lived... He walked, He interacted with others. I pray that we would, we would take it to heart. Um, or that we would not just read this as if it's another story or a fairy tale, but Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that these are real people and real events and a real Savior. Um, Lord, so today as we see the way that this woman approached your son, I pray that we would, we would learn from her. Lord, what an awesome witness. So, Lord, I pray that we would see first who you are. I pray that we would see our great need, our desperation, and we would see who we are before you. And, Father, I pray that we, like this woman, would just fall before you and we would cry out, Lord, help me. So, Lord, today I pray that you would guide us into all truth, that you would send the teacher, that he would, he would move in us. Lord, there's no words I can say that are going to make your word effective, but you make your word effective. So, Lord, today I pray that you would do what only you can do, that you would change hearts, that you would change lives, that you would open our eyes to who you are. So, Lord, let us see your word and know your word. Lord, when we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, before I dive into this, um, I'm going to make a, a quick confession. And this is, me making confessions isn't all that strange, but this particular one is a little strange for me. Um, just now, I was back in the back, we were singing that song, and I don't know why, y'all, I've been, I've been doing this for a few years now, um, and I don't typically get nervous anymore, which maybe says more about me than it does about y'all, but this morning, like, I don't know what it is. Uh, This isn't a particularly difficult text for me to, to, to break apart, but man, I'm, I'm nervous today, and I don't know what that is. I don't know if I've had too much caffeine or what, but I'm just a little jittery this morning, so... Um, y'all might pray for me as we work through this. Um, it may be because as I read through these notes last night, like, like I do every Saturday night, um, I, I actually got a little emotional as I worked through this and I'm not terribly comfortable with my emotions. So there you have it. Um, now you know my insecurities, but, um, we're, I'm hoping we can have a good time. I'm not going to try just to beat you up all morning, but, uh, anyway, you might pray for me. I, I, I know I would appreciate that, but. I thought we'd start today, um, start this time with uh, with a quick poll. I actually really enjoy these polls. How many of y'all have siblings? Quick show of hands. How many of you have siblings? Okay. The vast majority of you have siblings. The vast majority. Okay. Now, another uh, maybe more important question. 
How many of you have younger siblings? Okay, fewer, fewer. Uh-huh, yeah, this is where it's coming. So I actually sent my, my, my little brother a message earlier this week and said, just so you know, just so you know this is coming, I'm talking about you Sunday morning. And he told me he doesn't scare easily. And I said, well, you just wait. Um, so there we were. I was texting him back and forth. See, um, I've, I've told you all too many times. I've got three brothers. Uh, I've got two older, one younger. So I'm the third, uh, which I've, I tell everybody the third child is the best child. Um, no offense to my children who are not the third children. But uh, anyway, third child is the best child. How many third children in the room? Oh, really? I didn't know that. Look, at, oh, I love you guys. You guys are the best. You guys are amazing. Third children are the best. Um, mine's going to be the death of me, but third children are the best. Um, but see, I, I, growing up, there was always somebody around, right? You got siblings, you know, they're just always there. Um, and I'm still, my brothers, they're still some of my best friends. Like we're, we're close. I, I love my brothers and I'm very thankful for them. Um, but brothers can be annoying. Let's just call it what it is, right? They're super irritating sometimes. Um, and I remember it was no big deal for me whenever I started dating Steph. I, it was the end of my junior year, and she and I started dating. Um, and Jacob was just always around, right? Because we'd hang around. But now there was this pretty redheaded girl that I wanted to hang around. And she was, she was now there also. But that was, that was fine. Like, he probably didn't think much of it either. But I, I sure didn't think anything of it. I'm like, okay, well, Jacob's here. Now I'm just adding somebody to it. Like, what's the big deal? But see, Steph is effectively an only child. She has an older sister who's 12 years older than her, but she was effectively, like, she was always by herself. So whenever she and I started hanging out, like, we wanted to spend time together, but there's always this other one here. And I didn't think a thing of it. She may have noticed. Now, she, granted, she got better about it. Now, I think she loves my little brother, too. But at that point, he was just a nuisance. And what was funny then is I started thinking about that as I got older, like, okay, I remember my older brothers, whenever they started hanging around other, other friends or especially other like, like girlfriends, I remember they started hanging around and I was the annoying kid that just wouldn't leave them alone. I was just always there and I wanted to be there. So, uh, to my older brothers, if they hear this, well, I apologize, but not really because I don't care that much, um, but anyway, I was just always there. And now the funny thing is, I'm watching that dynamic play out, not with girlfriends, but with, with my kids. Like, older siblings, younger siblings, just always picking at each other. They want to be left alone? Well, nope, you don't get alone time, huh? Hey, you can lock the door all you want. We'll lay outside the door and put our fingers under the door or whatever, you know, slide stuff under just to mess with them. And they're just always there and they won't go away. And then, as I'm watching all this play out, one of my favorite things is being a dad, and I... I watch my kids, and they'll come, and they'll ask me for something. And sometimes I tell them no, right? Y'all got kids. You know, sometimes you have to tell your kids no. Crazy concept. But you tell your kids no sometimes. Well, I tell them no, and they'll ask again. Daddy, can I have this? No. Daddy, can, we, can, can I please have this? No. Well, why not? Well, because you don't need it right now, and I said no, so that's the answer. So no. But why? Well, and eventually, there's... A, don't judge me for my parenting, but occasionally my kids will come and they'll wear me down and I'll finally just say, okay, fine, whatever. Just leave me alone. I've got stuff I've got to get done. Y'all ever done that? Some of you are like, oh, Jared, you're a terrible dad. It's okay. We all know that. But sometimes we give in and we just say, okay, fine. See, the reason I bring that up is because what we just read a moment ago was a woman who just wouldn't leave it alone. She just wouldn't go away. She was not leaving until she got an answer from Jesus. 
And see, really, I think that we can learn some things from this woman. At least I hope that we can learn some things from this woman. If not, we're just not teachable because this is something that's been preserved for us. Preserved for us so that we can learn. So that we can be better disciples of Jesus. And I think that we can learn some things about the way that we approach Jesus. And that's what I'm hoping we can look at. And really, I think Jesus uses this as an opportunity to teach his disciples. To teach them some things about the way they come to him. And certainly he's working to see this woman grow. But he's, he's showing some principles of the way that we approach Jesus. And that's what I would like us to see today. And the first thing we find as we jump to this text, we find that when this woman, she approaches Jesus, she recognizes his identity. She knows who he is. Verse 21, it says, When Jesus left there, he withdrew to the area of Tyre and Sidon. Now, understand where Tyre and Sidon are. This is now pagan territory. This is no longer the Jewish, like, Jewish territory. This is pagan territory. All right? Um, And since they're in this pagan Gentile territory, we probably ought to also note that up to this point, any miracles that Jesus has performed have been for Jewish people or they've been on Jewish soil. Like, on their turf. This is the first miracle that's going to happen. It's going to happen for a non-Jewish person person in non-Jewish territory. Verse 22 goes on, and it says, Just then a Canaanite woman, a Canaanite woman from that region, came and kept crying out. Okay, now, Gentile territory, and here comes this Canaanite woman. And to us, where we sit today, that doesn't mean much. Okay, here's this Canaanite woman. But keep in mind, I haven't told you this in a while, but you remember who Matthew's writing to? He's writing to a first century Jewish audience. They know who the Canaanites are. They know who they were historically. They know that the Canaanites, these are ancient enemies. Ancient enemies of the nation of Israel. So now here's this ancient enemy of the Jewish people in a pagan territory approaching Jesus. She comes to Jesus in the last part of verse 22, it says, it says that she's come, she comes and she cries out. She says, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely tormented by a demon. So she approaches Jesus and she asks for mercy. Have mercy on me, she says. Now, uh, it's kind of a shame that our youth group isn't here today. No, don't misunderstand. I'm glad they're where they're at today. They're actually serving meals to homeless people in Kansas City. So I'm, I'm all for where they're at today. But if this row was full, I would ask them what mercy was. Because I know just a few, like about a month ago, they were talking about what is mercy? What is grace? What are these terms that we use? And they were talking about this. And they would be able to tell you that mercy would be withholding something that was deserved to us. What Marty talked about here just a little bit ago, right? What? That whole long list, by the way, Marty, you don't have enough paper to cover my sins. Um, so all that, <laughs> did you say you used it all? Okay. <laughs> the thing is, mercy is saying you deserve death because of all of those sins. Mercy is withholding that, not giving what we deserve. That's what mercy is. Mercy is kind or forgiving treatment towards someone who could be treated harshly. That's mercy. In other words, this woman is coming saying, Lord, don't give me what I deserve. Have mercy on me. See, this woman knows that Jesus doesn't owe her a thing. But she pleads for his mercy, his kindness anyway. She says, Lord, please show mercy. And she calls him by this title, right? Lord, son of David. And we read that, and we read it from, again, from our perspective. And, and we hear the word Lord, and we instantly think, okay, well, that means that he's the boss, right? Now, see, but Lord, in this context, could be just as simple as saying, sir. Like saying, sir, would you please help me? Right? And that doesn't seem like that's that dramatic. But she ties it to this second part of the title, right? 
She says, Lord, son of David. Now, while Lord may not be a big deal in this context, son of David certainly is. This is a tremendous deal that she's coming and crying out, Lord, son of David. See, God's promise all the way back in 2 Samuel 7, 16. Here God is speaking to David. It says, your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. And it goes on to talk about how there's going to be this heir of David, this son of David who is going to rule over an eternal kingdom forever. He was going to rule over this eternal kingdom. And there would be a son of David who is going to rule and reign. By saying this, this Canaanite woman is declaring that Jesus is the Messiah that the Jewish people had been looking forward to. He was the one that was to come, that was going to right all wrongs. This was going to be the ruler over God's kingdom. And she, she sees him coming, and she runs out to greet him and says, Lord, son of David. In other words, I know who you are, Jesus. I know that you're the king of kings. I know that you are the Lord over this eternal kingdom, the son of David. She knows exactly who Jesus is. And she cries out. And she brings her request. She says, she says, help me, my, my daughter is severely tormented by a demon. And this woman clearly knows that Jesus has authority even over unseen things. And she comes and pleads with him. Now, undoubtedly, she has heard of his power. But now she comes to him knowing that he's capable of doing something, even when nobody else could. See, she came to Jesus recognizing, at least as much as she could, she recognized his identity. She knew who he was. But see... The reason I think this is so important for us today is I think that we often, we often come to Jesus and don't really recognize who we're talking to. Um, I think that we often go to God, we, we go to Jesus. I think oftentimes we do that flippantly or like, you know, like the whole genie that's there to grant our every desire. Um, I think we often do that. Now, don't misunderstand. Don't misunderstand. Um, God's described throughout Scripture as a good, a kind, and a loving Father, and He's described as a friend. Um, certainly, He's described that way through Scripture. But I, I believe we need to realize, and I think we often forget, that we are going, whenever we approach God, whenever we pray, and we ask for Jesus' power over something, we're asking for the powerful, all-knowing, all-powerful King of Kings to interact. Like, we're approaching the God who spoke the world into existence, the one who is the author and the sustainer of life, and really the only one, the only one that can give life. You realize that's who we're approaching? That's who we're talking to? Here in just a few minutes, we're going to pray. And you realize whenever I say, let's pray, you realize that our goal is to go to the all-powerful, all-knowing King of Kings who will reign forever. You realize that's who we're talking to? Sometimes I think we miss that. And we go about prayer half-heartedly, and we just think, well, okay, yeah, I'm praying. All right, yeah, no big deal. No, prayer is a tremendous deal because of who we're approaching. And I believe we fail in one of two categories. Either we don't recognize Jesus' authority, and we do the whole genie thing, or we see Jesus as a sort of emergency plan, like a, like a parachute. And we're going to pull that cord the last minute, and it's going to be okay. But we're going to do everything we can on our own until then. Now, don't misunderstand, this Canaanite woman, she may have tried hundreds of things before, uh, but now she comes to the king who has the actual authority to act. Um, just this week, just this week, I had another, another pastor point out um, that we often don't pray. Um, 
we just don't pray about things. And really, what is it? What it is is arrogance on our own part, um, not recognizing that the God who has infinite power also happens to love us and care about us. Um, and I think it's really because we think little of prayer. Um, see, church, if if you hear nothing else, like I don't care what's going on. Actually, I, I, I don't care what's going on in your, your life. Like I do care about what's going on in your life, but I don't care in this context. Uh, go to the one who has all authority. Like, why do we not take things to God? The one who has all authority. Oh, and by the way, he loves you. Why do we not go to that God of prayer? See, this woman approaches Jesus because she recognizes who he is. Why would we not do the same? Do you recognize who Jesus is? But see, the second thing we can learn is that this woman, whenever she approaches Jesus, she demonstrates her desperation. She demonstrates her desperation. Verse 23 uh, it says that Jesus didn't say a word to her. <laughs> Jesus kind of gives her a cold shoulder. Um, just functionally ignores her. And yeah, this woman's here crying out, and she doesn't say any, he doesn't say anything to her. Now, is Jesus here being cruel? <laughs> it's, on the surface, it might look like it, but I don't think so. I think he's using this as an opportunity to develop both his disciples and this woman. He's going to develop something in them. Um, and apparently, she just doesn't go away. Because the disciples now, they start to get irritated. And at the end of verse 23, it says, His disciples approached him and urged him, Send her away because she's crying out after us. Like, send her out of here. She keeps coming after them to the point the disciples, it says, urged Jesus to do something about it. Like, Jesus, she just won't quit. She is tenacious and she won't leave us alone. Um, and this is why I told you about the younger siblings earlier, right? Um, she just didn't go away. Kind of like a younger sibling might just keep on coming and coming and coming. She would not let it go. She had to get an audience. Um, so finally, these disciples, they say, would you just get rid of this woman already? Like, Jesus, just do something about this. Now, English translations say, send her away because she's crying out after us. But see, the Greek and really Jesus' response, they indicate that uh, what they're really asking Jesus to do here is grant her wish so that she'll go. Like, give her what she wants so that we can get rid of her now. Like, she is being a nuisance, so just give it to her already so she'll leave us alone. Kind of my parenting style. See, this woman knew her daughter needed help. Knew that her daughter needed help. And she believed that Jesus was able, so she kept on crying out. Kept coming and coming. So Jesus finally addresses her. Then after the urging from his disciples, in verse 24, it says, Jesus replied, I was sent only to the, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, I don't know about you all, but I'm not from the house of Israel, so this sounds like bad news to me. Um, I'm not from the house of Israel, so this sounds like a problem. And if we isolate this passage out of the Bible, well, then it probably is bad news for us. But that's a terrible hermeneutic. Like, that's a terrible study, Bible study tool. Like, don't isolate one verse and be like, well, I guess I don't have any hope. Better move on. That's a bad idea. See, what we need to understand, again, is the context the context. See, as you read through the Bible, you're going to find that God's plan for redemption plays out through history. And it becomes increasingly clear as we progress through history. Up to the point that the disciples, I think they finally started to get it. They finally started to see the big picture. See, what we need to understand is uh, several things. One, Jesus, he was a man, right? Like real flesh and blood it means he was in one place at one time. He was in a real physical location, 
Okay? So, if that's the case, that means that because he had limited time here on earth, he probably needed to focus his ministry to be effective. Y'all know, if you ever do any kind of job, any kind of ministry, if you try to do everything, you're going to succeed at nothing. Right? If you try to do everything at your job, you're probably going to succeed at nothing. Um, The truth is, nobody can do it all. Jesus knew that he had limited time and limited space that that he was taking up right there. So he knew, I better focus my ministry. So he did. And he focused it to the house of Israel. And not only that, but we also need to understand that Israel was the covenanted people of God. So the good news, according to Scripture, had to go to them first. It had to go to them because they were the covenanted people of God. But see, where we're at today, where we're at today, we are at a different place in covenant history, in redemptive history. We are at a different place. There would come a day when Paul would later on write in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, he would say, There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since... You are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, there is no Jew, there is no Greek. That dividing wall has been broken down. Or he writes something similar in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. He says, In Christ there is not Greek or Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Look, in other words, the barrier has been broken down between Jew and Gentile. And now all that matters is this. Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Are you his and is he yours? But here, where Jesus is speaking, he says, I've been sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He says, right now I'm focusing my ministry. So in verse 25, she came and she knelt down before him. And I just want you to hear the desperation in this cry that she gives. She comes, she falls down before Jesus, and she says, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Like, I don't know that we get this unless, unless you've been at just like the very end of your wits, like the very end of your robe, don't know what else to do. You've exhausted all options and you just, you know, you can't do anything but fall before God and say, Lord, just help me. I can't do it. And she knew who Jesus was. That he was able to do that. And she pleaded with him to act on her behalf. Pleaded. Okay, so how does this play into our context? Again, whenever we come to Jesus... Um, are, we, are we satisfied just to say something half-heartedly? I, I, I am, oftentimes. It's like, yeah, God, I know this person, like, this person's sick. Could you heal him, please? Amen. Move on. Maybe there's a little more inflection, but not much. Like, I know that I can be cold-hearted. I know that I don't really care oftentimes. Or do we actually come to God and make these wholehearted pleas? Now, this woman, in her desperation, not only did she fall down before Jesus, but she cried out for his help. Now, look, I'm not telling you that you need to be dramatic every time you have a hangnail. That's not the point I'm trying to get to here. Uh, I'm not saying that you need to blow everything way out of proportion. I'm simply saying that maybe we need to learn um, some more perseverance in prayer. Maybe we need to learn that in bringing a request to Jesus, we need to realize that he can do incredible things while we can accomplish really very little of any substance on our own. Maybe we need to realize just how much we need help. And I think this is where many of us struggle because we become, we've become increasingly self-sufficient. We think we've got the answers. We think, well, I can do this. Right? Hey, if I can't, I'll just pick myself up by my bootstraps and it's all going to be fine. Everything's going to be okay. I got this. God, I'll come to you whenever I really need something. Y'all, I know I take that attitude way too often. This woman realizes her desperation and she falls down and says, Lord, help me. She demonstrates it, which actually ties directly to our next point. 
Uh, so this woman, she approaches Jesus and she recognizes his identity, demonstrates her desperation. But then she acknowledges her standing before him. She acknowledges her standing. In verse 26, Jesus answered her, says, It isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It sounds like Jesus is telling her no. That's what it sounds like. Really, what's happening here, though, is she's, or Jesus is continuing the idea that he came to the Jews first. And in this response, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, that would be the children and the non-Jews, including this Canaanite woman, they would be dogs. Like, dogs. Now, there have been scholars who have commented and said, well, this isn't like wild street dogs. No, this, this is like domesticated house dogs, the little, what I call kick-it dogs. Um, that's what these are. That's what they're indicating. I, I don't care. It doesn't matter. Just so you know, a bad evangelism idea is going to somebody and say, you're a dog. Probably not a good idea. But that's what Jesus does here. That's what he does. He says, no, I didn't come for you. You're one of the dogs. It's not right for me to throw you the bread that belongs to my children. But this woman, she gives a very impressive response. And it's so impressive that I read multiple scholars, commentators who said this is just filled with wisdom. Like this response is clearly from God because of the way it's said. Okay, verse 27, she responds, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. If you're an NIV reader, um, uh, I I hate to beat up on your translation, but you've got a poor translation at this point. Uh, Because NIV readers, um, it's probably going to say, but even the dogs eat the crumbs. Right? Now, that may seem like a small thing, because in the actual language, it's more like, for even the dogs eat, not but even. See, the NIV makes it out as, as if this woman is arguing with Jesus. Like, yeah, but, but Jesus, even the dogs eat. Like, even the dogs do that. But see, in the actual, in the Greek language here, what we need to see is that she's really agreeing with Jesus. She's agreeing with him. She's giving in. She's not being argumentative. She's not being combative. She is in 100%, she is 100% in agreement. And she says, for even, yes, I know I'm a dog. I know that I'm a dog. I know who I am before you. And she doesn't argue. She says, well, it's not like she comes to Jesus and is like, well, Jesus, you don't understand. That's not fair. It's not fair that you would withhold it from me and give it to somebody else. That's not fair. Or it's not like she comes and she tries to convince him that the covenant promises belong to her too. She doesn't argue. She knows who she is. She knows that she's outside the community. She simply asks for mercy anyway. She knows her standing. And by saying crumbs, by the way, um, it's not like she's saying, it, we're not talking about quantity here, we're talking about priority. That the meal goes to the children first, and then what's left would go to the dog. That's the point. It's not quantity. It's not like his grace would be just this little bitty bit of grace. No, it's talking priority, not amount. Okay? I remember... Um, it's been probably five years ago. I was talking to a friend of mine, um, and we were talking about this passage. We were talking about this, this very passage. Um, and if I'm being honest, there were some misunderstandings about it, both on his part and on mine, um, as we were talking about it. And I like to think both of us have grown some since then. But as we talked about this, he complained. Uh, he complained because he said, but I don't want the crumbs. I don't want the crumbs. I want the meal. Like, I want to be at the table. But see, there's a real problem with that attitude. Um, there really is a problem with that attitude. And here's why. Uh, I believe that attitude fails to recognize who we are. I think it fails to recognize who we are. Um, see, we don't see who we are before God. We think that we have some right to stand before God and tell Him what we deserve. No, you don't. 
You just don't. But oftentimes, and maybe it's because of where we live, maybe it's, maybe it's just because we are self, pretty self-sufficient, maybe that's what it is, um, but we think we deserve God and, God and his blessings. We take that attitude. Even if we're like, well, I know I don't, we still seem to think we do. No, God, I want to be at the table. I'm not satisfied with the crumbs. God, let me sit, with you. Let me sit at the table with you. That's where I belong. And whenever we're told we don't belong there, we take offense. Like, we get mad about it. Like, no, I'm not satisfied with the crumbs. Let me sit up at the table with you. We say, God, I don't want that. I want the meal. Give it to me. See, this woman, she knew her standing before Jesus. She knew where she stood. And she agreed that she didn't deserve his favor, but she, she still believed that he was able. And she hoped that he was compassionate enough to show her mercy. She knew her standing. And in verse 28, Jesus replied to her, Woman, your faith is great. Your faith is great. Huh. Um, that's especially jarring. Whenever you flip back one chapter, you go just one chapter earlier here, and you'll find, you'll find that Peter, the Apostle Peter, was told that he had little faith. And one chapter later, here's this Canaanite woman, and again, if we understand first century Jewish audience, we know that women didn't really have standing in this society either. So not only is she a woman, but she's also a Canaanite. And now they're living in, now she's out here living in pagan territory. And she says, your faith is great. While Peter, this Jewish man close to Jesus says, your faith is little. This woman had great faith. And because of her faith, verse 28, Jesus says, let it be done for you as you want. And from that moment on, her daughter was healed. See, this woman, she approaches Jesus She recognizes his identity. She demonstrates her desperation and she acknowledges her standing before him. So what? Well, if I'm being honest with you, there's too much application here to get to all of it. Um, But I'm just going to touch on a few things real quick before we get back to the main point at hand. But these are certainly applications that we can take. Um, First, plead with God on behalf of your kids. Plead with God on behalf of your kids. Um, If you're not praying for your kids, like actually going and pleading that Jesus would save them, I I wonder if you actually get it. Plead with God on behalf of your kids, your grandkids. Because the truth is, He's their only hope. Not just a hope, He is their only hope. Um, Pray for your kids passionately and persistently. And this is something I'm still working on. Um, I pray for my kids. I've been brought to tears praying that my kids would be saved. Um, just praying that God would open their eyes to their sinfulness and His, his goodness. Um, but there's still times I miss it. And I think, well, I can teach them something that they need to know. No, God needs to open their eyes. And certainly that doesn't take away my responsibility as their father. Sure, I have the responsibility of opening God's word and teaching them. But at the same time, it's God that has to open their eyes. I can't do that. So plead with God on behalf of your kids passionately and persistently. And don't try to get... Second thing we can learn is don't try to get rid of people who come to Jesus that don't fit the mold that we think they should. I think we do that all too often. And I don't think we, I don't think we do it intentionally. But I certainly think we do. Keep in mind, this is a Canaanite woman who's coming to Jesus. This wasn't exactly the disciples' target audience. Not exactly who they thought they were going to draw in. Right? And to some extent, Jesus agreed with that. But at the same time, he showed compassion on her. 
on her. And now look at the testimony that she and the disciples have because of her. Like, it's a tremendous. So don't turn people away because they don't fit the mold that you think they should. All right? So there's that. But if we want to jump back to the main point, um, I would guess that if I came around and asked every one of you, do you pray often? I think most of you would say yes. Um, I, I really believe that. I think that, that we're in a room that's filled with praying people. I think that's, I think that's fair. Um, but, but whenever we come to Jesus, do we do so arrogantly? As if we're owed something. Um, see, I'm convinced that oftentimes we don't get answers to prayer because we don't really believe that we need Jesus whenever we take it to him. I, I'm convinced of that. I think oftentimes we pray for help and healing and we're like, yeah, but we've got doctors for healing. Oh, well, uh, you know, this person's struggling financially. Yeah, I know, but we've got jobs that take care of that. Or worse, we say, well, there's social programs that will help them. Are you kidding? Plead with people. What we need is not better systems. We need Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that systems are a bad thing to put in place. I'm thankful for healthcare workers that they do what they do. But who's the healer? Who's the one that can really bring true healing? Is it a doctor or is it Jesus? Go to the one that has everything. Don't go arrogantly. Go humbly, recognizing who God is. And see, really, I think our arrogance it stems from two problems that we've already looked at, but I, I just want to touch on these again briefly. First, we don't either, either we don't recognize who He is, and whenever we pray, we're, addre- that we're addressing the God who created all things so infinitesimally small. Think about the things that God created. He created things so infinitesimally small that we can't even see them under some of our most powerful microscopes. Like things that we know exist, but we can't see them. We, we can't even see the this, this tiny details that God has put into creation. Yet at the same time, whenever we pray, we're also addressing the God who created things so grand, so vast, that we can't fathom the extent of them. You realize that's the God that you're approaching whenever you pray. That's the God. So vast, yet so small, we can't fathom either one. We don't get either extreme. And here we are thinking, we're, we're okay, we got this. No, we're approaching the God who created all things. And even though he created all things, he still is the one that holds all things together. Apart from him, everything stops. Nothing works. So we sometimes approach him without recognizing his power, his authority, his grandeur, his infinite nature. As Paul writes in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, he says, For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. Even things that are invisible to us, God created them. He has authority over them. He says he created thrones and dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. God is the one who holds all things together, created all things. Do you realize that whenever you pray, that's the throne you're approaching? It's his. So I just want to urge you, um, whenever you start praying, whenever you say, well, let's just go to God together. Realize that's the God you're approaching and do so humbly, not arrogantly. Um, I think the second problem we often have whenever we pray is that we don't recognize who we are. Uh, but if I'm being honest, this is, this is the emotional part. Um, you and I, you and I, according to God's word, we're sinners. Um, we are sinners who deserve the, to suffer the consequences of our sin. Uh, I, this, is, this might hurt your feelings. You deserve hell. Amen. Amen. 
if you let that sink in for a minute, um, you'll kind of, I think you'll probably get the point. We don't deserve God's grace. We don't deserve His mercy. That's what makes it mercy. You don't deserve it. I don't care if you think you're a good person. We talked to Sunday school this morning about how our best works are like filthy rags. You don't deserve God's grace. You just don't. But see, His mercy is withholding the very punishment that we deserve. We don't deserve to approach God. But in His great mercy, in His great love, He made a way for us. Something that we couldn't do on our own. And now, because He lived the life that we couldn't live, because He died the death that we deserve, because He was raised from the dead for our justification, now we can approach His throne of grace with boldness. Because the truth is, is if your life is in Christ, if your life is in Christ, you're a child of the King. You are not some dog that's cast to the outer, outer edge of, the, of faith. Like, no, if you are in Christ, you are a son or daughter of the King. Um, look, should we be satisfied with crumbs? You better believe it because we don't deserve that. The good news, though, is He loved us. And in His love, He adopted us. He drew us in. So yeah, we approach humbly, understanding that He is the God of all the universe, but we, all must, we must also realize that we do have standing before God, not because we're good, but because of the kindness He showed us in Jesus. That's the only reason we have standing before God. Now, I just want to urge you to remember, remember that gift. Remember that. And whether you've been a Christian for 30 seconds or you've been a Christian for, I don't know, 50 years or more, like if you remember that, it will change the way that we pray. It will change the way that we live. It changes everything about the way we approach and about the way that we live our lives. It changes absolutely everything. And I think this woman got it. The real question is, do we get it? The God of the universe loved us while we didn't deserve the crumbs that fell from his table. Church, that's how she approaches and that's how we need to approach. So um, let's, just, let's just do that. Let's approach this throne of grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, God, I'm, even just now as I say Heavenly Father, I'm being reminded that um, I have no right, no right to call you my Father. Um, or the truth is, um, if, I, if I stopped and I thought about who I am and who you are, Lord, I don't deserve the breath that I have to say these words. God, you are so good. Um, you are so good. Lord, and I thank you that we don't have to have a spirit of fear whenever we approach you. Um, because you've given us, you've given us your son. You've poured everything out for us. Lord, what more could you do? Lord, God, you are incredible. Um, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to that. That you would open our eyes just to how great you are. Um, how vast you are. How, just give us, give us some concept of your infinite nature. Your divine power, as it says in Romans. Um, Lord, and I believe that we will then truly be humbled. Um, Lord, I know... I know that I fall into that, that trap many times that uh, I, I start thinking, well, 
I'll, I'll go as far as I can on my own then ask God to fill in the gaps. So Lord, I pray that you would forgive me. Because um, the truth is, everything I have belongs to you. It's all yours. So Lord, remind us of that. Lord, but also remind us, remind us of who we are. That while we were, we were dogs that didn't deserve the crumbs that fell from, from your table, Lord, you adopted us as sons and daughters. Lord, remind us of that, and then we will give you praise. Um, Lord, I know that there are too many, too many personal needs to go around today, and I know that every single one of us has stuff we're dealing with in our lives, but Lord, I pray that you would remind us today that we can bring those to you and plead with you to come to you persistently and patiently in prayer. Um, Lord, and I pray that you would, you would soften our hearts so that we might do that. Um, so, Lord, let us just remember that you're the God who loves us and cares for us. Let us come to you in perseverance and just ask you to act on our behalf. Um, Lord, let us learn from this Canaanite woman. Father, I thank you for this time. Uh, I pray that it would be glorifying to you, that we might walk walk in step with your spirit, uh, that we might know you more. Father, and not just live different today or for the next however long we're together this morning, but instead you would drive us to walk differently for the rest of our lives, that we might actually know you and we might pursue you, not because we're good, but because you're good. Um, So, Lord, let us do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.